We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. As you're turning there, we're going to start in Genesis 37. As you're getting ready, I want you to first turn and look to somebody. And if you're John or Darren at home, you could put this in the chat and answer this question. Who was your favorite Spider-Man? All right, so we're, we got a picture up here so you can remember who they are. We got uh, Tobey Maguire. And I mean, that pose, come on. Right? Like... He's, he's really gunning for, for the top spot here. Then uh, we went to Andrew Garfield, and then we got Tom Holland in the MCU. So who is your favorite Spider-Man? Talk amongst yourselves. Figure it out. Debate. Like, this should be heated discussion. All right. I honestly didn't expect that much heated discussion. <laughs> Some of you are, like, really passionate about this. All right. Who, who, just shout it out. Who is it? Who's, who's the top Spider-Man? No one said Andrew Garfield? Yeah, good call, guys. Good call. <laughs> it's definitely between the OG of Tobey Maguire or the new Marvel Cinematic Universe. He wasn't nerdy enough? Tobey Maguire wasn't nerdy enough for you? Bro. <laughs> all right, all right. What about, I didn't put this one up here because I didn't find a picture with, with the fourth one. What about the Into the Spider-Verse? That's the best one, right? Miles Morales, the animated one. He, he tops them all. Yeah. All right. So much like, actually not much like at all, but somewhat similar to how Spider-Man keeps getting rebooted, <laughs> we've been seeing in our travels through Genesis how God's project for humanity kind of has to keep getting rebooted, right? So he starts with the first man and woman, with Adam and Eve, and there to be this picture of what God's like to the rest of creation, showing the rest of the world what the good creator's like, and they fail miserably. They rebel against their call to partner with God, to care for creation, and they become this other type of humanity, right? That, where they try to be kings over themselves and try to be rulers over themselves and say, we don't need you, God. We could decide what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. We don't need you for that. And so in a sense, you get like this reboot story that keeps happening over and over again, right? So you, you hear there's a promise, like through the seed of the woman, there's going to be a son who comes one day who will redeem what humanity is supposed to look like. And then you see with their sons, Cain kills Abel. That's off to a bad start, right? Brother against brother. And actually what we've seen all throughout Genesis is the story continues as God continues to pick a family and go, okay, out of this family, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something here that the sons always end up at odds with each other. This promise of a son that would come, and you get these two sons we always hear a story about that are just like going at it, right? And so God finally decides, he goes, okay, I'm choosing Abraham, and out of this man, out of this family, this nation will be born, this family will, will be built up to be a blessing to the rest of the nation so that eventually all of humanity would be welcomed in to be restored to what they were meant to be. And so Abraham has uh, a couple sons and they were at odds with each other, right? Isaac and Ishmael. And then Isaac has a couple sons, Jacob and Esau, and they're at odds with each other. We talked about that last week. And now we're looking at Jacob's sons. And Jacob has actually 12 sons. We're gonna take a look at two of them again. 
because that's a lot of sons to talk about, right? Uh, we will give an overview of each of them. You'll hear their names, but we're going to really hone in on two sons in particular of Jacob's and where this story is taking us. And so get ready for Genesis 37 and why you get your thumb there or why you, you're swiping there on your phone. Let me just kind of set the scene, okay? So Jacob, we heard, he, uh, he kind of stole the birthright promise from his brother Esau. He manipulated, he deceived, and he took what he wanted. And then Jacob goes out, he, he moves away, and he goes to find a wife, and he starts working for this guy named Laban. And Laban does Jacob dirty the way Jacob did Esau dirty. He starts manipulating him, right? Because Jacob comes up to him, he goes, hey, you have a beautiful daughter, and I would like to marry her. What do you want in exchange? Because that's how they did things back then, right? It was like, I have a goat, but I want a wife. You have a daughter, but you want a goat. We could connect the dots here, you know? That's how they did it. And so Laban's like, work for me for seven years. I'll give you my daughter. So he, he loves his daughter, Rachel, his younger daughter. So he works seven years. And after seven years, he goes to, do I, how, what are the ages of kids in here? Okay, he, he goes to consummate this relationship. Well, that's a word that you might have to explain later. Uh, with Rachel, but it's in the middle of the night. It's dark. They didn't have lights like we do right now. They didn't have even these skylights that are throwing me off big time. Uh, and so Laban sends his oldest daughter in there instead, Leah. <laughs> Jacob has no clue. And the next morning he's like, what? What just, what'd you do? So he goes, hey, work for me seven more years and then you'll get both of them. It's fine. It's cool. <laughs> so he works seven more years and it creates this terrible, tragic situation in this family, Right? I mean, just think about even those two women. Like, all of a sudden, all their memories of growing up as sisters are replaced with competing as wives. How dysfunctional, right? And Jacob, we're told, he, he loved Rachel, but then there was also Leah. How tragic is that for her? And so God... Uh, in, in order to kind of like, I don't know, tip the scales a little bit in her favor, Rachel can't have kids. Leah does. She has four sons. She has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Now, those first three sons, every time she goes and it says, she names them this and she says, now maybe my husband will love me because I gave him a son. Three times in a row she says that. Now maybe my husband would love me. And then by the fourth son, Judah, she goes, you know what? Now I see that God loves me. So she goes, hey, I, I'm not being loved <laughs> and cared for by this man, but I know that there's someone greater who loves me. And at that point, like that's the last son that she has. God, God's like, okay, you know that I love you. I got your attention. We're good. So then Jacob continues to have six more sons from not Leah, not Rachel, not his two wives, but their servant women. Yeah, this is like the dude who gets named Israel and that like, our, our whole like family of faith is built on, right? So he has 10 children at this point, 10 sons, also daughters, but you know, we don't, we don't hear much about them. So 10 sons at this point, and then finally, his youngest, 11th son, Joseph, is born to Rachel. So not only is it his youngest son, but also he's born to the wife that he wanted in the first place all along. So guess who's daddy's favorite? Joseph, right? 
Some of you guys are thinking back right now and you're like, yeah, I, I know. I remember who the favorite was in our house. And it's bringing up all kinds of pain. But some of you are like, yeah, I was the favorite. And you're like, yeah. I was a middle child. So that meant like I got forgot a lot. Like no joke. Me and my stepsister were on the same soccer team. Somehow from practice one time, they picked up my sister and left me. It's not a lie. Now suddenly all, all these things about me are making sense, right? You get it now. So this is a dysfunctional family. Joseph's the favorite. Joseph would like go tattle on his brothers. We're told early in chapter 37 uh, that Joseph would go and give a bad report about his brothers. And then so it made them mad. And then Jacob, just to like add insult to injury, he lavishes Joseph with all this stuff in front of his brothers. He gives him this, this weird, ugly coat of many colors. It's like sequenced or something, I don't know. But it's, it's something extravagant to show like, like everyone in the family got a robe, but like he got this really, really nice one made out of like fine purple, you know, threads and things like that that were hard to come by in that time. And so he's just like flaunts it around, you know? He's like, look at my threads walking around his brothers. So they hate him. It says that they could not bring themselves to say anything nice about him. So now turn with me to Genesis 37. Jacob is not winning a Father of the Year award right now because all that's the case. And in Genesis 37, he then tells Joseph, hey, my, my older sons, your brothers are working in the field. I want you to go spy on them for me. I want you to go check on them and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do and come back and let me know. Like he sends them off to be alone with these guys. So in verse 18, this is where it picks up. They, his brothers, saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. His older brothers conspired to kill him. This is how much they hated him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. That's actually a, a word for it. It was a cistern. And so in that time, they would have these, like, they'd have wells where they get water from the ground, but then they had these other pits that were dug to capture rainwater. Uh, but there was these dried up cisterns there. And so they say, let's throw him in one of those pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams then. But when Reuben heard it, that's the oldest son, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben had this plan like, hold on, hold on, guys, don't kill him, don't kill him. Just toss him in the pit and leave him there. And then he thought secretly though, I'll go back later. I'll rescue him out and I'll be the hero to my dad because here's what we skipped over about Reuben. Reuben, the oldest son, Remember, the oldest son gets the birthright. The oldest son gets double the portion of what anybody else gets. The oldest son carries on the family heritage. Well, this oldest son, Reuben, slept with one of his father's servants, his concubines. Defiled his bed, right? So he's trying to get back in good standing with his dad again. So where was I? Verse 22. So Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him in this pit here in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand that he might rescue him out of their hand, restore him to his father, Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. It's like, we just threw our brother in this pit. I'm hungry. Let's have some lunch. 
Like, how cruel is that, right? They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Remember, this is all in the family, right? Isaac and Ishmael were their granddaddies. So this is like extended family here, coming from Gilead, and with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, so they're traders, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, that's the fourth brother, right? The youngest of Leah. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. Doesn't that sound nice? Like, let's not, he's our own brother, our own flesh. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave. Yeah, good job, Judah, right? And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, that's a sign of grieving, and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. I know I have the CSB version on the screen and I'm reading the ESV. I actually like can't find my CSB, this Bible this morning. So if anyone sees it around, please let me know. What a crazy story, right? Crazy, tragic. And this is like, if you thought you had a dysfunctional family. And so Joseph gets thrown in this pit. Reuben steps up and goes, hold on, I'm just gonna like save him from there later. But his plan fails. Then you got Judah who's like, well, hold on. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him instead. And just in case you might think like that Judah is actually doing, pulling a Reuben here, that he's just saying this to his brothers so that they could spare his life in the moment and later he's gonna redeem him. The next chapter 38 takes like a kind of a turn from the story of Joseph. And it goes, now let me tell you more about this Judah character. So we've already heard how Reuben, the oldest son, discredited himself from getting the inheritance. Then there's a story about Simeon and Levi, the next two oldest, who basically murder somebody. And so they get discredited from the inheritance. So now you have Judah, right? That's the next one in line who should be getting the inheritance. That's the next brother who's like, okay, we're hoping that this one steps up to the plate and does the right thing. So chapter 38, the next chapter, which we're not gonna read this morning, gives us this crazy story about how Judah leaves then from his brothers. He's like, I'm getting away from this. He leaves, and then he goes and he starts building a family, having kids, but he has a son who gets married, and his son dies. And his son's wife now is a widow. And in that culture, like, widows had no way really of taking care of themselves. In a very patriarch culture, like, the, the guys had to step up, and there was law in that time that the men had a responsibility then to take care of someone who was widowed in their family. And so the father's duty, the father-in-law's duty was to then give her one of his next sons in line. So he gives her the next son and that son dies. So then there's another son, but he's too young. So he's like, hey, hey, go back and live with your dad for a while. And then when this son gets older, I'll give him to you to be married. 
But then he gets worried when his third son gets old enough. He goes, wait a second. This woman's got like the kiss of death. So if I give him to her to be married, I'm going to lose that son too. So he just doesn't tell her. He, he, he just leaves her on her own. And the reason why that's such a big deal is because she, again, she, she didn't have the same rights to go out and get a job and take care of herself, to be educated. And so she relied on someone marrying her in order to provide. And he just leaves her. So she ends up disguising herself as a prostitute. He's traveling through town and he's like, hey, remember what I said? Like, I got a goat. You got something I want? Literally, he's like, I'll give you a goat. And they make this exchange. She's disguised. He doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. She ends up getting pregnant, but she, she took some of his stuff as a like transaction deal. Like, all right, you're going to give me a goat, but how do I know you're going to come through with a goat tomorrow? So give me your staff. Give me your, your robe. Give me this stuff. So when they find out later she's pregnant, he's like, what? My daughter-in-law, she was unfaithful. Have her burned. Kill her. And she goes, okay, send to Judah these things and tell him it was by this man that I became pregnant. And then he'll know who it was. And he gets it and he's like, oh, oh, dang, that was me. Okay. She's actually more faithful than I am because I didn't keep to my word. So she spares her life. She lives. She has two children. She has twins. And you get this really weird story there about one's starting to reach his hand out first and they tie a string around him, but then like he goes back into the womb and then, what? I, don't, I haven't watched that many births, but I haven't seen anything like that before. So then the other son comes out. So uh, it's a crazy chapter. You should make it your, uh, your nighttime reading. But I just gave you the cliff notes right there. So it gives us that for a reason. This is Judah, who doesn't care for women and who is being unfaithful and who is sleeping around with prostitutes. And then you flip over to Genesis 39, and you get this story of Joseph now. Remember Joseph, sold into slavery? He ends up in this guy Potiphar's house. He's like a, a royal official, and Joseph is doing well. In fact, in chapter 39, verses 1 through 4, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him over his, overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. This is going to be a recurring theme that we see of Joseph, that the Lord is with him. And so Joseph is there. The Lord is with him. He's a slave, but now he's living inside his master's house. So he's got a pretty comfortable lifestyle, actually, for a slave, as far as that goes. And Potiphar trusts him with everything. And what happens is you get this contrast story now of what's Joseph going to be like with women? So Potiphar's wife comes up to Joseph and she's like, hey, my husband's not around a lot. I see you working hard. Muscles are looking nice. Like she wants him, right? I don't know if he had muscles that looked nice or not. I'm reading into the story, but you guys get it. So she's like going after him. And he keeps telling her no. So you have this contrast. Joseph's going to be faithful. Joseph's going to treat 
women with respect. Joseph's gonna treat his master kindly. He says, listen, this guy's given me like every, access to everything in his home except for you because you're his wife. How could I do this? How could I sin against him, against you, and most importantly, against God? And one day, she can't take no for an answer, and she snatches him by his robe, and he starts to run off. Now, when you hear this next part, it sounds weird, but think about like a toga, right? So you just got like a sheet over you. So she grabs that, and he's like, I'm getting out of here. He runs away, and now the dude's naked. So he runs out naked, and she's got his robe, and she knows in that moment one of two thoughts are going to be made up right now. Either he did something wrong or I did something wrong, or both of us. So she immediately makes up a story. She screams and says, this slave tried to come in here and take advantage of me. And then Joseph gets thrown in prison. Potiphar's like, how dare you? I gave you everything. But we read in verse 21 of chapter 39, after Joseph's taken to prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do you hear this theme that's repeating over and over again? Wherever Joseph finds himself, in the bottom of a pit, sold as a slave, thrown into prison, the Lord is still there with him. And let's just pause for a second. Like, all right, let's, let's come out of that time travel story. And right now, here we are. I don't know where you are right now, emotionally, mentally, physically with your life, but know that the Lord is with you. He's with you wherever you're at. And this was Joseph's story. And so God keeps like giving him favor wherever he's at and he keeps getting put in charge of things. And then I'm gonna skip forward to chapter 41 real quick. And in chapter 41, verse 37, we find that this theme continues to repeat itself. So what happened in the prison is Joseph, he meets two guys who are thrown into prison around the same time. The cupbearer for the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and also the baker. Something happened, we aren't told what, something happened in the palace where the Pharaoh no longer trusts them and he throws them into prison. And they both have a scary dream at night, the same night. And Joseph's like, oh, I've had dreams before. I, I know about dreams. Joseph used to have these dreams all the time that he tells his brothers that he was gonna be like in charge of them. <laughs> Another reason why they hated him, right? So he's like, I have dreams. Tell me, tell me your dreams. Let's see if I can make sense of them. So they share the dreams and God reveals to Joseph what the dreams are about. He tells the baker, yeah, dude, you're done for. Like whatever you did to Pharaoh, he's not happy with you. You're going to die. And that's exactly what happens. But he tells the cupbearer, you're going to be restored back into your position. Like you're going to be found innocent, actually, brought back into the palace. And when you do, tell the Pharaoh about me. And the cupbearer is like, yeah, of course I will. He gets set free the next day, forgets immediately about Joseph. Two years later, Pharaoh starts having these crazy dreams himself and he's like troubled by them. He's scared. He doesn't know what's going on. And suddenly the cupbearer remembers. Oh yeah, there was this dude uh, down in the dungeon in prison who told me all about my dreams. Maybe he can help. So Pharaoh sends for him. He comes back and Joseph hears his dream and he's like, I know exactly what that means. 
there's a famine coming. You're going to have seven really good years of food, but then seven years of like no food. And so he gives them this plan. This is what you do during the seven years of plenty. Don't just like enjoy it all, right? When you guys are living fat, you got a good job, nice paycheck. Don't just blow it all. When I was 19 years old, living on my own for the first time, and I had a really well-paying job, I would just like go to Disneyland every weekend. And then by the time I, my wife and I started dating, I had no money to take her out. So learn from my mistakes, right? So he's like, save some of it up. You'll have some in the next seven years of famine. In fact, all the other nations will be coming to you to get some food. So in chapter 41, verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God rests? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring. That's the ring of authority. You would like seal your, your letters of wax with that. So they know which household it came from. So he's giving his authority to him. He took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Let me pause right there for a second. Again, you got this repetitive thing going on that Joseph, wherever he finds himself, God keeps giving him favor, God stays with him, and he gets getting put into these positions where he has authority and an effect on like everything around him, right? Now, this is not a story where I say now, now listen, if you just trust that God's with you, like you're gonna be put in the, the top chain of command at your work. You're gonna be like second to your boss only. That's not what this story is about, you guys. What this story is trying to do is remind us what was the call from humanity at the very beginning of the story? represent the true king, God, right? Represent me to the rest of creation and you will have dominion and authority over all things. And we're seeing this re repeat itself now with Joseph. Wherever he went, he becomes second in command to whoever's in charge as their representative and he gets put into command over all of their things. It's a reminder of what we're called to be as humans representing God, the true king. And so Joseph is this picture for us. He's this picture of what we're supposed to look like. And did you catch that? That when, when Pharaoh gives him his signet ring and he clothes him with a robe, does that sound familiar to another story? We, we talked about last week, actually. So last week we talked about his father, Jacob, Joseph's father, Jacob, and his twin brother, Esau, right? And we talked about how that story parallels the story Jesus tells in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. We call it the prodigal son, but there are two brothers. And when the younger brother comes home, when the father clothes him with a robe and he puts his signet ring on him, Joseph's story is reminding us, in a sense, of that. It's like a, it's like a pointing you forward to it. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to be talking about. So both these stories of his dad with Jacob and Joseph's story 
Jesus takes like this amalgamation of those two stories and he gives us, he creates this parable of the two sons and the prodigal dad of this crazy love that the father has for his children and how he pursues them, how he welcomes them into his family. There's a lot more story, so let me, let me fast forward. Chapter 43, I told you we're finishing Genesis this morning, so it's a lot. Chapter 43, verses eight through nine. What's happened now, so a lot transpired between those last two chapters I skipped over. What happened is everything Joseph said came true. A famine came into the land and nobody has food, even in the nations surrounding Egypt. And so one day, Jacob, who's old now, he's grieving the loss of his 11th son, but he's now had a 12th son named Ben, Benjamin, to Rachel. And so this is like the full-blooded brother of Joseph. And so he has these 11 boys at home and he has no way to feed them because there's a famine. And he goes, hey, listen, my sons, I want you to go travel to Egypt. I heard that they got plenty of food there. There's some dude in charge running the show with Pharaoh and like apparently everything he does is golden. And so go and see if you can buy some food from them and bring it back to us. He sends all of them except for his youngest son, Benjamin. So they get there, they go and they meet Joseph, but they don't recognize him. He's dressed up in all this Egyptian garb. He recognizes them instantly, but he speaks through a translator so that they can't tell it's him. And so he starts talking with them and he's asking them about their family. And this is where he learns that he's got another brother now. So he says, listen, I'll give you some food for now, but you can't get any more until you come back with your younger brother. And he makes up the story like, I, th- I think you guys are spies. And so I want to make sure your story's true, right? But really he wants to meet his brother. And so they go back and their dad doesn't want to send his youngest son. He's like, no, I'm not going to lose th- this son that I have to Rachel, my wife, who I love. I already lost one. I'm not going to lose another one. And if I lose this son, I will die. A sad man. And so in chapter 43, verses 8 through 9, did we read that one already? Judah said to his father, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And then again, if you skip down in verses, uh, in chapter 44, in verses 32, now he comes back and he says to Joseph the same thing. He's reminded, he's come back now with Benjamin. He goes, Listen, your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What happened is he, his dad finally goes, okay, fine, Judah, if, if you don't bring him back, you'll be responsible, okay. So he's taken all the responsibility on himself for the safety of his brother. They go, they get there, and then Joseph pulls this other little trick again. He's got one last test for them. He sends them away and he hides a very valuable thing in Benjamin's bag. And they find it later. And they go, he goes, hey, you guys stole from me. And they're like, no, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. And they find it in Benjamin's bag and he's going, you guys can go free, but this one's staying, he's gonna be imprisoned. And you're thinking, why in the world would Joseph do this? But remember, remember what happened to Joseph. He saw how his brothers treated him for being dad's favorite, for being the youngest, for being the only son of the wife he loved, Rachel. 
And he's going, are they going to do this again? This is, here's now the only son that Jacob Belisi has from his wife, Rachel, he loves, his youngest son and his favorite, Benjamin. And Joseph's going, let's see how they act when his life's in danger. Will they just ditch him the way they ditched me? So he gives him one last final test. And in that moment, at least Judah proves to be faithful. There's like this redemption story that happens for Judah here. Judah, the guy who treated his wife, his daughter-in-law, his family horribly in chapter 38. Judah, who was the one who said, sell Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Does that sound familiar to anybody? From another story again with Jesus involved? Who was it who said, to the Roman officials, I will sell Jesus into your hands. This time it was for 30 pieces of silver. Let's attribute that to inflation. For 30 pieces of silver. What was his name? Judas. Do you know those two names are the same in the Hebrew? Judah and Judas. Same names. Jesus is rolling with 12 guys and the one who betrays him is named after the one who betrayed Joseph. Do you think that's a coincidence? So Judah doesn't get this, this birthright because he was the one who sold Joseph into slavery and he was unfaithful in all of his dealings. But we have this little redemption moment. And at the end of chapter 38, those two twin boys I mentioned who were born to him, their names are mentioned in Jesus' lineage. I was thinking about this the other day. Why wasn't Jesus born in the tribe of Joseph? You know, there's 12 tribes of Israel. They're all named after Jacob, Israel's sons, right? And in fact, Joseph kind of gets like these two tribes out of it. His sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, both get blessed by his father, Jacob, before he dies. And so you, you get like all these tribes coming from this family line. Why didn't Jesus come from the lineage of Joseph, who was faithful in the story? Like everything we're told about Joseph sounds pretty good so far. The Lord was with him. He was in charge of all things. He handled things really well. Why was Jesus born to the tribe of Judah? That's what he's called, right? The Lion of Judah. The betrayer. And in this crazy, beautiful, weird, but miraculous event, Jesus simultaneously, I believe this is why he told the, the story about the two brothers. He's saying both of them are welcomed into the father's house. The one who stayed and tried to do all the right things and the one who ran off and squandered it. Like they're both welcomed back into the father's house. And Jesus in that moment of being betrayed by another Judah for a few pieces of silver, taking on that role of Joseph, but also being born into the line of that betrayer himself. He's in that moment saying, listen, all of you, family, dysfunctional, broken, messed up family, you are all welcome back into the Father's house now. I am bringing you all back in. Jesus is the true brother who does what we couldn't do. He's the one who takes the birthright and does what's best with it and shares it to the whole world. The way Joseph says, hey, let's stock up this food and we'll be a blessing to the nations around us. Jesus says, I got the blessing of the Father to share with all of you. There's plenty of it. Even Judah, the betrayer, you're welcome back in the Josephs, all of you, you're welcomed back into this family of God. One more thing happens I want to read before 
we close up Genesis. And it's in the last chapter, in chapter 50. What happens is, Joseph finally breaks down. He reveals to his brothers who he is. He forgives them. He welcomes them into Egypt. He tells them, go get your father. Bring your whole family back here. You can move here. Pharaoh loves Joseph so much. He's like, yeah, give them whatever land they want. And they end up in this land called Goshen, which we'll find in Exodus that the Israelites still live in 400 years later. But that's another story. So they, go, they end up there. And then one day his father dies. He dies happy because he thought his son was dead. He sees now he's alive. He blesses all his sons and then he dies. They bury him in his homeland. And then his brothers go, wait a second. Now that our dad's dead, what do you think Joseph's going to do with us? Maybe he's still harboring some bitterness. Maybe he's still upset with us. Dad's not here to protect us now. What's going to happen? So they start scheming again. They start devising a plan again of manipulation, falling back into those old patterns. And they go, hey, tell Joseph that uh, dad made, made him promise before he died that he would treat us well. Like he never said that. But in Genesis 50, verse 20, this is Joseph's response. He says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, but God meant it for good. He meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And a lot of historians and theologians and people way smarter than me believe that that verse right there, Genesis 50, 20, is like the whole summary of all of Genesis. This whole story is telling us there is a lot of bad happening in this world. And all of it is happening by people. People who thought, no, we could tell the difference between right and wrong, God. We don't need you. And we do all these things for bad, for evil, for wickedness, for our own selfishness. But God uses it still for good. Does it mean that God caused it to happen? No. Does it mean that that was God's plan? No. What it means is God takes even the junk and he uses it for good. He redeems it. He restores it. I started this off with a joke about like the reboot, right? The Spider-Man reboot. Like, here's the thing. God's not actually rebooting his plan over and over again. He has stayed faithful and consistent with the very promise he gave in the beginning with the first man and woman. What we have done with our evil intentions, though, God can still use for good. To wrap that up before we head into Exodus next week, verses 24 through 26. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Here's why that's important. Joseph knew, I've got favor here. I'm in charge in Egypt. I'm running things. I've got a pretty good life, but this isn't my home. He knew who he really was. And he knew the land that God had promised his family long before that. And he goes, listen, I'm going to die here and I'm going to be buried here. But one day, 
even though you're taken care of right now, one day God is actually going to come through on his promises. Joseph still trusted that. God gave us a bigger promise and this isn't it. And one day he's gonna come through on that. And do you know that 400 years later, we're gonna find in Exodus, as Israel is leaving Egypt into the land God promised them, Canaan, we're told that Moses takes Joseph's bones with him. That God's promise is true and faithful. And so again, let's, let's come out of our time machine for a second, out of ancient Near Eastern world into today. And whatever we're, we're dealing with right now, whatever we're sitting in right now, and we're going, where is God? That's great. God was with Joseph. You said that a bunch of times. You read that a bunch of times out of the book, Chris. Great. Where is God right now? Remember these promises that God made for his people. He is faithful to do. And so what we know is thousands of years later, one day a better son came and he set all things right. But we also know that someday soon he will return again and fully make things right. That there is something better God has for us. And in the meantime, like Joseph being faithful in Egypt, how do we be faithful here today in Phoenix in 2021 until Jesus returns? Amen.